This morning we come to the end, not just of Romans chapter 8, but the end of a section of Romans setting out the results of the gospel. At the end of August, we'll move on into chapter 9, but this morning we come to the end of chapter 8. And since chapter 5, Paul has been explaining the results of the gospel. He's been explaining the blessings Jesus won for us on the cross. And now as he comes to the climax of this part of his letter, Paul wants to put those blessings to the test. He wants to put the gospel to the test. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 down to 39. And if you're using a church Bible, that's page 1135, or in the large print, 1756. Back in chapter 1, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And now he's going to ask some tough questions to see if the gospel holds up. He's going to test the gospel against real life. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. And Paul asks several questions in this passage. I think they boil down to three main questions. Who will succeed against us? Whose accusations will stand against us? Who will separate us from God's love? Notice how Paul starts off in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? These things are all the things of chapters 5 to 8. The blessings of the gospel. Paul is talking to men and women who have received those blessings. The blessings of peace with God. Death to sin's power. No condemnation. The spirit of God within us. Adoption as God's children. Heirs of a great inheritance. Future glory. The Spirit interceding for us today. 
God the Father working for our good in all things today. Paul's writing to men and women who have received all those blessings through faith in Jesus Christ. And now he says, let's see how those blessings hold up against real life. The first test comes in verses 31 and 32. Notice how Paul actually puts it in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now our first reaction to that is, plenty can be against me. Plenty of things are against me, Paul. Where do you want me to start? Actually, we might wonder if Paul knows about these words of Jesus to his disciples. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. Jesus said that following him will actually increase our enemies. Did Paul not know that? Actually, the rest of our passage will show he did know that very well. And the sense of his question is, who will succeed against us? The words, God is for us, are a summary of chapters 5 to 8. Those chapters tell us God is on our side. He's working for our good. And with God for us, Paul wants us to see it doesn't really matter who or what is against us. They will not succeed against us. What would it mean for them to succeed? It would mean keeping us from the inheritance God has for us, future glory. It would mean us sinking under the power of sin and being lost. But since God is for us, those things are never going to happen. One preacher says, if God is for you, then God would have to be defeated for you to be defeated. Now Paul isn't going to leave it there. He wants to show us we can't be defeated. That's the point of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is one of the most significant verses for our day-to-day confidence as Christians. It's a verse worth, worth memorizing. What Paul is doing in this verse is arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying to us, if God has already done this greatest of all things for you, you can certainly trust him to do the lesser things for you too. And what God has already done is this. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Gave him up means handed him over to death. The New Testament tells us Jesus' death was not an accident. 
Yes, he was killed by evil men. But the book of Acts tells us Jesus was handed over to those men by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Here in Romans chapter 3 told us God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. God the Father took the initiative in Jesus' death. Why? Was it because he hated Jesus? No, the Father and Son had a perfect eternal relationship. When Jesus was baptized, the Father said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The Son was the most precious gift the Father could give. And he did give him for our salvation. The Father handed his Son over to death so we could be saved from death. He did not spare Jesus from punishment so he would be able to spare us. In earlier chapters, Paul explained that we deserve God's wrath. And God's wrath must fall. But at the cross, it fell on Jesus. Those who turn from their sin and trust in him will never face God's wrath. Those are the facts. And now Paul wants us to ask ourselves... How likely was it that God would do that for us? We know he did do it, but how likely was it? Imagine for a moment you'd never read the Bible or never heard about the Bible. And I asked you, do you think God Almighty would take action to save his enemies? You'd probably say, unlikely, but just about possible. But then if I said, what if the only way God could do it was to sacrifice his only son? Then wouldn't you say, no way, that is not going to happen. In other words, what God has done for us is the greatest thing he could do for us. If we didn't know it had happened, we wouldn't believe it could happen. We saw an example of that at the Holiday Club last week. During the story of Zacchaeus, Megan explained how he cheated people as a tax collector. And then she asked the kids, do you think Jesus would come to be friends with someone like Zacchaeus? And one little boy shouted out, no way! I don't know if that little boy had ever been to church before, but he got it. He understood how incredible that would be. And it's even more incredible that God the Father would give Jesus up to die for people like Zacchaeus and me and you. But he did. And here's Paul's point. If God has already done that greatest possible thing for you, won't he do the lesser things for you too? 
if he did the most unlikely thing of giving his son to buy you future glory? Won't he also give what's required to get you safely to that future glory? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In the context here, all things means all things necessary between now and eternity. Having bought you at the greatest price, God's motto from then on is, whatever it takes. I'll provide whatever strength and grace is needed for this adopted child of mine. I'll overcome any enemy that stands in his way or her way. Whatever it takes to keep this child of mine. One writer says this, You will never face a disappointment, temptation, responsibility, obligation, opportunity, or calling without the resources of God's grace. Every day of your life, God looks at you and says, whatever it takes today to preserve this child of mine. Why do you and I doubt God's care for us? Why do we start worrying that he isn't going to give us what we need? Isn't it because we have so little idea how much God loves his son Jesus? What I mean is, if we grasped what it meant for God to give Jesus up to save us, if we could sense that price God has already paid for us, We couldn't doubt he'll come through with the lesser stuff for us. Getting you through the attacks of your enemies is small change compared to what God has already paid out for you. It's less than pennies. So this week, when you begin to doubt God's care for you, When you doubt he's going to give you what you need this week, then pray. Ask God to show you how much he loves his son Jesus. And then say to your soul, the father already gave the son he loved so much for me. Of course he's going to give me the pennies of grace that I need today to get through this conversation or this trial, to fulfill this responsibility, to obey this command. God will give me what I need. The God who has given us the greatest thing will give us all the lesser things we need. Paul has asked one tough question of the gospel. And now he asks another. Whose accusations will stand against us? Verse 33. 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. We're to picture a courtroom here. The background to this came earlier in Romans. We learned that the whole world is held accountable to God. He's the judge. It's his courtroom. And here Paul says to those who belong to Jesus, picture yourself in that courtroom standing in the dock. God the judge is sitting at the bench. Now let's see who can come into this courtroom and make their accusations stick against you. You'll notice Paul presents the situation in a similar way to the first one. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And we want to say, lots of people, Paul. Certainly Satan will bring accusations against me. His name means accuser. And he has plenty of things to accuse me of. He doesn't have to make things up. He could bring a lifetime's worth of sin that I have committed. My friends and family have plenty of charges they could bring against me. They have seen my temper and my selfishness. They have seen my unfairness up close. Doesn't it make you wince to think how much dirt your family could accuse you of? And it would be accurate. And don't our own hearts bring accusations against us? Because we know all the other stuff even our families don't know about us. If we have any sensitivity in our hearts at all, Don't we sometimes feel sick about our own sinfulness? So, Paul, is that enough for you? My accusers are Satan, those who know me, and myself. And Paul says, okay, that's plenty. Now let's ask, which of those many accusations are going to stand against you? Which of those charges are going to get a hearing in God's courtroom? The answer is, none of them. If you've come to God through faith in Jesus, then God considers your case to be closed. He will not accept any accusations against you. He'll throw them out of his court. As far as God's concerned, your trial is over already. God has already passed his verdict. And you're not guilty. You're justified. Is that because God is unjust? Has he just turned a blind eye to all the dirt you've done? No, he is perfectly just. All the dirt you've done has already been punished. It's been punished in Jesus on the cross. So Satan 
and your family and your own heart can bring all the charges in the world against you. All of them accurate. And God the judge will say, I'm aware of it all. And it's been paid for. The case is closed. Clear off with your accusations. God the judge will say that every time for the rest of your life. And Jesus himself will stand there reminding his father every time. Verse 34 says, Christ died. That's what paid our penalty. And now we're told he's raised to life at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He is our advocate with God the Father, reminding him our sin is paid for. So now we know that two members of the Trinity are interceding for us with the Father. If you remember last week, we saw the Holy Spirit is interceding from our own hearts, praying for all that we need day to day. And the Spirit's prayers are always successful. He intercedes in accordance with God's will. And now we learn about our second intercessor. Christ Jesus intercedes for us at the Father's right hand in heaven. What does Jesus' intercession consist of? Well, every time there could be a fresh accusation against us, in other words, every time we sin, or every time an old sin is brought to light, Jesus, our intercessor, reminds his Father it's already paid for. The case is already closed. And just like the Holy Spirit, Jesus, our intercessor, is always successful in his intercession. Why? Because he's interceding with our Father. Our Father who's already on our side. Verse 33 says, it is God who justifies. He's the one who accepted Jesus' payment for your sin. He passed the not guilty verdict on you. He will agree with Jesus' intercession for you. It is amazing that heaven is so busy on behalf of you and me. But it's true. Romans 8 tells us every day the Spirit and the Son intercede for you. And every day the Father accepts their intercession. And here the specific point is, the Father who justified us and the Son who intercedes for us will accept no accusations against us. And if we truly love God, that truth is not going to make us comfortable with sin. It's not going to make us, make us careless about sin. It's going to draw us to turn away from sin. It's going to motivate us to obedience. Obedience. 
In verses 35 to 39, Paul brings his third test for the gospel. Who will separate us from God's love? In other words, what would have to happen to us to prove that God had abandoned us? There are plenty of possible answers to that. In verse 35, Paul mentions just a few of them. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In other words, being put to death. It's not hard for Paul to make this list. Because at this point in his life, apart from being put to death, Paul has actually experienced all of this stuff himself. We know that from the book of Acts and Paul's other letters. Verse 35 describes real life for Paul. Paul can testify to the fact that life beats us up sometimes. Many of you can testify to that too. As Christians, we don't have to pretend life is always a barrel of laughs. We don't have to pretend life always goes smoothly. You can add your own items to Paul's list in verse 35. And then Paul quotes from the Old Testament. And he does that to show it's always been this way for God's people. Verse 36 is a quote from Psalm 44, speaking to God. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In the context of Psalm 44, God's people are not suffering because of sin they've committed. They are people living for God and trying to do God's will. And yet the world feels like one massive slaughterhouse. And they feel like the sheep that are being slaughtered. That's the experience of God's people all through history. Life beats you up sometimes. And the question is, can any of life's beatings separate us from God's love? Paul gives the answer in verse 37. In the original, verse 37 starts with the word but. In other words, no, none of these things can separate us from God's love. But, on the contrary, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What does it mean to be more than conquerors? We know what it is to conquer something. It means that we beat it. We overcome it. But what can you do to a negative thing beyond beating it? How can you more than overcome it? The answer is you can see it work in the end for your good. That's what it means to more than conquer something. It not only fails to harm you, it actually ends up serving you. 
Paul says that's what happens for us in all that life throws at us. And remember, this is not just theory for Paul. Remember his list in verse 35. Verse 37 is the testimony of a man who's gone 12 rounds with the worst life can do to us. Verse 37 has been put to the test in the ring of life. And it's been proved to be accurate. One preacher says this. We move forward not as victims, but as victors. Because everything happening to us, while not necessarily good in itself, is working for our good and is guided by God's love. Your life is a love story. So stop thinking of yourself as a victim. Your real life just happens to be the vehicle God is using to bring you to splendor. Your sufferings do not define you. The love of God defines you. The worst this world throws at us cannot separate us from God's love. But what about powers from beyond this world? Can spiritual forces get between us and God's love? Paul turns to that possibility in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in the spirit world or any other world can separate you from God's love. The one who loves you is Lord of all creation. No buggy trawling around Mars is going to find anything to disrupt God's love for you. In fact, no buggy anywhere in the universe will. God will use all that life throws at us to lead us further into his love. As Paul closes, notice just two things at the end. The first is obvious, but I'll mention it anyway. The end of verse 39 does not say nothing will be able to separate us from earthly comfort. We have no guarantee of that. In fact, the previous verses tell us earthly comfort is quite likely to disappear for us. But what will never disappear is the love of God. Our true wealth and true happiness are as secure as God himself. And second, notice we're talking here about the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. 
It's not just words. God's love is shown to us in a person. We receive and experience God's love by coming to a person, Christ Jesus. In fact, there is no other way to experience God's love. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. So if you want to know this God we've been talking about, come to Jesus. Come believing that he's God's son. Trust that he died in your place. Turn your life over to him. And you will receive the unshakable love of God. And if you're already a Christian, realize that what you have in Christ is worth more than anything else in the universe. Be sure that the God who gave you salvation in Christ will give you anything else you might need. And he will never let you go. We're going to respond to God's word as we sing together. In Christ alone my hope is found. Let's stand as we sing this.